After a big win, many people have seen Miami coach Jim Laranega in action, doing his version of the Ollie Shuffle. Okay, maybe not the same rapid footwork, but still impressive since it started going viral in 2013. Maybe this year, with a solid record and a win over Duke in Cameron, Miami's almost certainly headed to the big dance, where Hurricane fans will definitely approve of Jim's latest groove. Hello, Jim. Hi, Leslie. How are you? I'm okay. I made up a little poem there. Um, now, you know that Muhammad Ali did, he did the shuffle to make Ernie Terrell scuffle. Uh, is that your intention? <laughs> well, first of all, you know, I was a great fan of Muhammad Ali. Um, I, I, I'll tell you this quick story. I was a freshman in high school when he fought Sonny Liston. And John DiOrio was my uh, uh, teacher at Archbishop Malloy High School. And the day, the day before the fight, he said, Sonny Liston would have to tie his hands behind his back uh, for Muhammad Ali to win the fight. And uh, when Ali won, uh, the next day, all the students, including myself, gave John DiOrio the hardest time. <laughs> I became a huge Ali fan throughout his career. And so uh, when we beat Illinois in a very close NCAA tournament game in the round of 32, uh, I had asked my team to fight, just keep fighting, because it was such a well-played game by both teams. And at the end of the game, when we won, I was headed into the locker room and I was thinking to myself, how can I emphasize to the guys how well they fought? Well, the moment I thought of that, I thought Muhammad Ali is the greatest fighter of all time. And so that's what what uh, inspired me to do the Ali shuffle after that great NCAA tournament win. You know, growing up, of course, you followed him early. I think he fought at Madison Square Garden like six or seven times, um, many of them as Cassius Clay. But tell me about growing up in the Bronx. Are people fans of all sports? Oh, yeah. New York City is really. In my mind, growing up, the mecca of college basketball, going to Madison Square Garden, I used to watch my brother Bob play. He played for St. John's University, and I'd go to the holiday festival. I watched Jerry West and, and, and uh, uh, Jerry Lucas play in Madison Square Garden. That, that was West Virginia and Ohio State and St. John's, and I believe Billy the Hill McGill from Utah. So. Um, I watched all kinds of sports. The Yankees were in their heyday with Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris breaking all kinds of records and winning the World Series. Uh, the New York Giants played played in Yankee Stadium. So all sports were big. The, the, the Rangers in hockey. And then uh, growing up in the Bronx, but but commuting to high school in Queens, it took me an hour and a half one way to get to high school. And then an hour and a half home after a grueling two or three hour practice, I'd get home at nine, nine thirty at night and then turn around and have to get up at uh, six thirty in the morning and do it again. For for people who don't know about the Catholic League in New York, can you can you explain it? Like, why would you do that? Why would you take bus number? What was it? Thirty seven or something to Queens? Yeah, it was the Q44. And the, the reason I did it, the head coach of Archbishop Malloy was Jack Curran who's a legend and quite honestly should be in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. He was a tremendous influence on my life. 
and on the lives of so many other student athletes who attended Archbishop Malloy, both in basketball and baseball. And uh, I was recruited. In New York at that time, high school coaches would have tryouts. And I tried out for a scholarship, earned a scholarship to Archbishop Malloy back in 1963. And I got to Malloy with uh, two other uh, scholarship players, Dick Zeitler, who would go on to Georgetown, Matt Lynette, who would go to, to Manhattan College. And we had like 12 Division I players uh, on, on my high school team. They just We had a, a great, great team. A uh, player by the name of Kevin Joyce was on our 1972 Olympic team. Brian Winters was a freshman my senior year. He would go on to have fantastic success with the Milwaukee Bucks in the NBA and have his jersey uh, eventually retired by the Bucks. So it was very competitive. The Catholic School League had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It had so many other great players coming out of the New York City area. And, uh, you know, we enjoyed a lot of success in high school, but also earned scholarships to college. Well, um, this is very painful to me because I am a Boston College graduate. And why didn't you want to come play for Cousy or maybe Chuck Daly? I don't know which one was yours, but really. My dream in high school uh, was to play for Bob Cousy at Boston College. Jack Curran called Bob Cousy and asked him to come down and evaluate me. He said, this guy wants to go to Boston College. He'll commit as soon as he talks to you. So Bob Cousy and his assistant coach came came down and watched us play against St. Agnes of Rockville Center. And I met with Coach Cousy after the game. And this is exactly what he told me. He said, Jim, I enjoyed watching you play, but I think you're a Division II player. We, we, we're going to get a commitment from a, a first-team All-Stater by the name of Vinny Costello. So we're going to take him. I think you should look at, at uh, Division II. And uh, what I did, with, Mr. Curran said to me, did you commit? And I said, no, he told me to go Division II. And in, um, a month later, I got the offer from Providence College and decided to, to go to Providence. And what I was very proud of is when we played Boston College my freshman year, I had 39. Oh, and we crushed Boston College's team. My, the next year, I got 28. And, oh, all uh, right. <laughs> and then Bob Cousy was quoted in the paper saying, I, I made a mistake. I should have offered Larinaga. Do you look at it like um, the blessing of your life was to have Coach Curran and then Dave Gavitt? Well, I've been so blessed throughout my career of being around so many great coaches and people. And I, I emphasize people because Mr. Curran, was my role model and inspiration for wanting to coach because I thought he was the, the perfect uh, uh, coach in high school. And my goal was actually to coach in high school and be like Mr. Curran. I got to college and played first for Joe Mullaney, who was also a tremendous coach. And then the opportunity came. Uh, Dave Gavitt became the head coach of Providence. And I learned so much from Coach Gavitt and he helped me get my first coaching job with Terry Holland at Davidson College in 1971. And Terry was a great role model for me as well. Do you ever lament that when Providence came calling, you didn't go there? In 2008, uh, to be quite honest, I loved George Mason. I never intended to, to leave George Mason. I, I expected that I would retire there. 
But one of the reasons I loved it so much was I had such a great personal relationship uh, with the president of the university, Dr. Alan Merton. And when he announced his retirement, you know, not knowing who was going to replace him or what their vision would be for the university and the basketball program, I decided this might be the time I was 62 years old. And I thought, well, if there's any openings now around the country, maybe I, sh I should look to make one more move. And when Miami opened, it seemed like the perfect fit for me. Providence College had offered me the head coaching job in 2008, but I felt like I was having so much fun and we were winning so much that, that it might be best for me and my family just to stay put. What, what were your feelings? What went through you cutting down the nets at the regional final? Well, you have to remember in 2006, uh, we were an underdog in every game. We played Michigan State in the first round and they had won, got to the final four the year before. So no one expected us to beat Michigan State. But after we did, we played the defending national champion, the University of North Carolina. And we were a tremendous underdog in that game. When we beat Carolina, everything started to change because the next rounds were, were uh, at the Verizon Center in Washington, D.C., 16 miles from the George Mason campus. Beating Wichita State was a great win, but then playing the University of Connecticut, the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament, it seemed like it would be it would take a miracle for George Mason to beat UConn. But by that time, we had the support not only of George Mason fans, not only of the the region, but we were the the darling of the NCAA tournament, whole country, the whole nation behind us. Yeah, it was. I remember telling you at that 2006 that most of us thought that George Mason was the father of the Bill of Rights. That's like, that's all we knew. Yeah, that's, and that is correct. He wrote the <laughs> and, Bill of Rights. He was best friends with George Washington and, and uh, a, a very famous politician. He, he uh, has had a tremendous impact on this nation. And uh, George Mason University and our basketball program had a tremendous influence on our nation because we captured the hearts of all college basketball fans during March Madness in 2006. Do you think that um, that gave other schools mid-majors, you know, we saw Butler, we saw VCU, that uh, Loyola of Chicago, that kind of you were not the first maybe, but that run went on for, it's gone on for a while. Yeah. Now, Here's what I would tell you. One of my favorite phone calls after we uh, made it to the final four, I got a phone call from Barry Collier, who was a very close friend of mine and the athletic director at Butler. And he just said to me, you just broke the four minute mile. Now, every mid-major coach and program knows that they can do it. If George Mason can do it, why not us? And then, of course, in 2010, Butler did it. They did it the following year in 2011. And VCU got to the final four in 2011. Shaka Smart took his team there. But do you know who won the regular season in the CAA that year? George Mason. George Mason. <laughs> I think that nothing in American sports delivers on its promise like the NCAA tournament. 
I mean, you just really don't know what, no one ever gets the bracket right. Well, that's true. And I have some great, great memories. My first Final Four was in 1974 when NC State won the national championship in Greensboro. And I sat courtside at that game, courtside on the wood. All right. Now, I can't get that ticket no matter what, because <laughs> those t- seats are going for whatever, millions, I'm sure. You know, from that time when people say, they always say, who's the best player in the history of the ACC? And people reflexively say Michael Jordan, but it wasn't it David Thompson? In, in my uh, years of coaching, I've coached against David Thompson. When I was at Davidson, we played NC State. And David Thompson was absolutely awesome. I coached against North Carolina with James Worthy and then Michael Jordan uh, and all the great Carolina players. Coached against Lenny Bias, who was also a legendary player. Um, And all of those guys, I don't like to compare because of different generations and the way the game was played, the way the, the game was officiated. Even now with the three-point shot, it has changed so dramatically. But just know that being able to go to a Final Four and watch those great players battle each other for the right to cut down the net and listen to the song One Shining Moment is something you will never, ever forget as a player or a coach. And if it's your team, you'll never forget it as a fan. You cut down the net after the regional final. You're going to the final four. You'd had, like you said, you'd beaten Michigan State, uh, uh, Carolina, Connecticut. And did you sit in the locker room by yourself and just think of Jack Curran? And, or, or what went through your mind after that? Yeah, Leslie, I'm glad you asked that. I, everybody uh, can remember that Connecticut was a huge favorite. And they tied the game and went into overtime. And everybody thought they would beat us then in overtime like they did the University of Washington in the previous game. And I remember what I said to my team. They came over and they were a little discouraged because we had a two-point lead and, and, and let Connecticut score. And I said to them, hey, listen, guys, right? we didn't play defense for five seconds. Now we got to play great defense for five minutes. But you know what? There isn't any place on earth I'd rather be than here with you guys playing Connecticut for a chance to go to the Final Four. Where else would you rather be as a college basketball player with a shot at getting to the final four? Let's go out and show the world what we're made of. We won the game. We cut down the nets. And now we're headed, headed to Indianapolis, for the final four, to play Florida. And you know what, Leslie? The, the, the joy that it brought. And I had asked and invited Coach Curran to come to the to, to the games in Washington D.C., I said, hey, you, "I'll fly you down. You know, hang out with me and the team." And he said, "No, I got baseball." And he wouldn't. He wouldn't come. When we made it to the Final Four, I said, "Come on, Coach, you, you got to come." So he flew in to Indianapolis with two of my childhood friends, John Kerry and Billy Foley, who I grew up with. John Kerry was the point guard on my high school team and Billy Foley and I have been best friends forever. And, and Mr. Curran, John Kerry and Billy Foley came on our team bus and hung out with the team all weekend. And Mr. Curran, I asked him to speak to our players the night before we played Florida. And it was, it was one of those 
just very special moments for me to share it with three of my the closest people in my life. And then unfortunately, we weren't able to upset Florida because Billy Donovan and and those seniors were were just too much for us. Al Horford, Joachim Noah, and Corey Brewer. Right. Great team. Sometimes Florida gets lost, you know, the greatness of those teams that just kind of people talk about champions and, you know, how hard it would be just to get to the final four and then to win back to back. I mean, you were really facing a, a monolithic team there. Did um, when you grew up in in I think you told me Park Chester, is that where you Park grew Chester. up? In the- now, tell me about those games that um, just pick up games where they like brutal, physical, you know, <laughs> Northeast basketball is so physical. I mean, is that what it was like when you were a kid? Well, well, the first thing you'd have to to realize is everybody in our neighborhood played basketball. Everybody. So it was so competitive. When you played one-on-one or two-on-two or three-on-three, it was winner stay on. When you played five-on-five, it was a marathon. And if it was a Saturday, you'd go down to Rockaway Beach and it was half court on a perforated backboard with a rim with no nets. And you played three on three and the winner stayed on. You lose. You might have to wait an hour to get back right onto the court. So did so nobody we, call a foul? Were you, were no, no, it was no. no, it was it was brutal. But one of the things that I did, and this has been a part of my coaching career, too, is networking. So I would invite invite really good players from New York City to come to Parkchester and play. And so I'd call Jimmy O'Brien. He was from Brooklyn. I'd call Dave Wold. I don't, you know Dave? Sure, sure. Yeah, sure. He was from time. Jersey. He'd sure. bring Gary Brokaw and uh, John Samoji to come to Parkchester. I'd call Dean Meminger and, and Charlie Yelverton. <laughs> what about Tiny? Why didn't you have Tiny there? I didn't know Tiny. Because oh, okay. he didn't play in the Catholic school league. He ah, played in the, right. in the public Dewitt school. Clinton. Wasn't yeah, yeah. Dewitt Clinton. Yeah. But but uh, John Roach and Tommy Owens, they would come to Parkchester to play. So I try to organize the game so the best New York City players, whether you were from the Bronx or you from uh, Manhattan or Queens, or if you were from from Brooklyn, you were going to be invited to to come and play against me and my neighborhood friends. And uh, we, <laughs> it's like we West Side Story. Point, we got to the point that when I was a senior in high school and just finished the season. My neighborhood team, we put a team together and put it in into the Porchester tournament, which is in Porchester, New York, just in Westchester County. And we played against Dr. J and his team. Dr. J had declared for the draft. He signed eventually with the ABA, the Virginia Squires. But we we played against them. Uh, and I don't know if you know the name Georgie Bruns. You know George no, Bruns? I don't. George George was a, a terrific college player, uh, a point guard, and if he listens to this, he, he'll tell you he was better than all my all my <laughs> friends. But we we played against Dr. J and his team. His backcourt is George Brun's backcourt teammate in the in the Porchester tournament was JoJo White of the Boston Celtics. Do you think JoJo White stepped on the line against Texas Western in the regional <laughs> final, and we would not have had? <laughs> the glory road. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, <laughs> Jojo White played uh, at Kansas, played for the Boston Celtics, but he was also, I believe, in the ROTC or something that had to serve some time in the military 
And that's what made him available to play in the Porchester <laughs> tournament in 1971. So it was George Bruns, Jojo White, and Dr. J. And then they had a guy, I think his name is Whitmore or Whitlock. He played for the uh, New York Knicks. That was their pickup ball team in the Porchester tournament. I scored 47 points against Dr. J's team. And I will never forget that. We lost, though, in a close game. Oh, that's the part. Like my husband, you know, uh, Bob Knuth was a captain at Harvard. And they, of course, got crushed by Boston College when they played. But he outscored Billy Evans. And so we have the framed box score. So whenever <laughs> Billy comes over. <laughs> but I will tell, tell me about your uh, childhood. You probably can't see back here, but the idol of my childhood, I grew up in Boston, was Sam Jones, who, uh, of course, uh, maybe he's on this side. He became a great friend. But every year on Halloween, little girls would dress up as Mary Poppins. I would go as Sam Jones. I would write <laughs> 24 on my shirt. And Sam, who you know, we just lost a couple months ago. But um, Sam, like he would call me every year, Leslie, please don't dress up. I mean, come on, you're in your 50s. Now you're in your 60s. And I'd say, I don't care. You were my idol. Who, were you a Dick McGuire kid or who was yours? Okay. So, you know, Jack Curran has described me as the best back, backboard shooter in Malloy history. And the reason that I was a great backboard shooter was Sam Jones was one of my idols growing up because I was a huge Celtics fan. Casey Jones, Sam, uh, Casey Jones, Sam, Sam Jones, and John Havlicek. Eventually, John Havlicek and Bill Bradley became my true role models. But my backboard shooting is a direct result of following Sam Jones and his career with the Celtics. Oh, I can't believe I'm going to now, you don't live that far from me. We're going to have to go to lunch every week and talk about the old Celtics. <laughs> um, okay, eventually you did leave George Mason and you went to Miami, which does that now make you the youngest coach in the ACC? I believe, <laughs> right? You got Brother yeah. Bayheim, who's about 90. <laughs> what else you got there? Mike, right? Well, Coach K is retiring now. Jim Beheim can go on forever. He's, he's had and enjoyed so much success. Uh, I can tell you this. Everybody said he must be absolutely loving coaching his sons. Well, I coached my sons. It's very stressful at home. <laughs> <laughs> because you love, you love when you win. You love when they play well. But if you lose a game, it is miserable. No kidding. Did you did you have to watch that you didn't favor one over the other? Like, was there that no, dynamic? I, I never had a problem with that. I, I coach my players. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, whether they're my sons. I, I look at my all my players as, as family. I, I, a quick story. When we played Toledo, my uh, my son, Jay, senior year, and he was a great player, was the leading three-point shooter in Bowling Green history at the time. And uh the, the first part of the game, I took him out and I put in a young man named Tony Reed and Tony caught fire. So I just let Tony in the game. We ended up uh, winning big. And after the game, my son was was uh, in my office complaining that I didn't play him enough and couldn't understand why. And I, I, I didn't like him complaining. So I, I ripped into him, told him to shut up and just go home. I went home and told my wife and she started ripping into me for not playing him more. <laughs> so you can't win when it comes to your your son. Your wife is always taking your son's side. Of course. I remember Rick Majerus used to tell me that story that at Marquette, one time he stormed into Al's office and he said, why is that other kid playing ahead of me? Come on. 
And uh, Al said, is your last name McGuire? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but tell me about your team this year. I mean, you've had some massive wins and, you, you know, you're steady. You're still in the top of the ACC group. All right. Well, it really began in the summer when we, my staff and I sat down and we started to evaluate our personnel. And when we looked at our roster, we really don't have, we only have one guy that weighs over 215 pounds. We're a very skinny team. And so we looked at the other rosters and the four or five position, especially where guys weigh 230, 235, 240, 245, 250. And we said, we're just going to be so overmatched with bulk, the physicality of the game. So we decided we were going to have to be smaller and quicker and, and scramble more, trap the ball, trap the big guys and really try to force turnovers. And so that's kind of, kind of been our, our, our motto that we might be skinnier, but we're going to be quicker and out hustle and force more turnovers than our opponent. We've been able to do it in most games. The biggest game, of course, was when we went to Duke. Uh, they were number two in the country at the time. They had beaten Gonzaga and had a, a lot of terrific wins. But we were 5-0. and oh and uh, No, we were 4-0 and oh and playing really, really well at the time. And we forced a lot of turnovers, especially in the first half. We were able to stay comfortably in front for most of the game. And then we made some big plays in the last minute. We were down two. We scored to go to tie the game. Then we, we scored to go ahead, and then we had to stop them. Uh, Trevor Keels missed a three that would have won it for them. But after the Duke, Duke game, we also had some other terrific uh, road wins. Well, you always, uh, a hallmark of your teams is defense. And this team is fun to watch defensively, but they're also, you're, you're so active. Um, at CBS, our guy, John Rothstein, said you have more guards than Shawshank. mentioning Shawshank I'm a big movie fan so that's one of my favorite movies of all time Uh, do you do you like the ACC tournament when it's in is it fun for you when it's in New York well you know I have still family up there so you know they they all want to come and watch and my my wife will be up there uh I've my my sons will probably come up from Washington D.C. Uh, he and and his two sons are big time into basketball. My son, Jay, is the assistant coach with the L.A. Clippers. He's going to be very busy, so his family can't get to New York. But his daughter, who's a freshman at TCU, will be flying to Miami and then flying with the team. So my wife will have her granddaughter with her in the stands in Brooklyn at the Barclays Center cheering for the Miami Hurricanes. After she pays, I think I saw the tickets are like $700. <laughs> yeah, it's, so, it's an expensive trip for us because uh, we've got to fly her to Miami and then fly her <laughs> back to, to Dallas, Fort Worth afterwards. What will tell you uh, that your team is playing well? Like, well, first, what do you have to do for the rest of this season? And what do you want to be like going into the ACC tournament? Well, I've described the ACC regular season throughout the year as a marathon, not a sprint. It's a long, grueling 20-game schedule, 10 at home, 10 on the road. And like the, the marathon, you have to be at your best at the end of the race. And then we close it up on senior day at Syracuse, the Orange Men, Jim Beheim. Yeah, they're so tough. I mean, aren't they? Of course, you play them regularly, but that zone gets into the tournament in the first two rounds. It's kind of 
people don't know what's going on. Yeah, no, it's a very different zone, primarily because they have so many good players that are big. They're very big, you know. And Buddy Bayheim, as a guard, yes, is yes. out there in the front of the zone. It, it's very hard to attack him. And then, and, and then uh, Cole Swider is big at the forward position. They're just a, a, a very talented Syracuse team. Coach Beheim does a fantastic job. I just have to remember to bring my wardrobe because the first time I, I coached against Beheim, I forgot my my suit and I had to borrow his sport coat to to coach at Bowling Green when we played in the Syrac- Syracuse Carrier Dome. And it was pro- I don't think he changes his wardrobe very often, so it was probably about ten years old. <laughs> yeah, it was his his camel hair sport coat, oh, okay. and he was forced to wear his his uh, his uh, blue. Uh, sport coat and gray slacks. Why does Virginia give you such a hard time? Tony Bennett. He's a great, great coach. You know, I think he's going to go down in the history of college basketball as, as, as one of the really great coaches of all time. The really? way his teams, the way his teams execute their game plan day in and day out, year in and year out, every time you play them, it's the same. They play great defense. They take care of the basketball. They don't make very many mistakes. They don't beat beat themselves. And uh, Tony deserves a, a lot of credit. You know, he's won more uh, ACC games in the last uh, eight years, I think, than anybody in the conference. So uh, he's a great coach. And they, they don't only give us a hard time. They give everybody a hard time. Everybody. But is it is it hard to as an opponent? to not get frustrated. They make the extra pass. They make every pass that you do. Uh, is it frustrating to play against them? Well, you know, frustration is basically a mindset. You, you, you're either like the challenge and enjoy the competition, or you get frustrated because they, they're better at executing their game plan than you are at executing yours. Uh, but in the ACC, every team is a challenge. It's not just Virginia. I mean, trying to get ready for Duke. We've enjoyed a lot of success against Duke. I think we're like six and six against them. Yeah, you're like 500. It's tremendous yeah. against them. And we've also had some success against Carolina in many years. Uh, but those are great coaches who are very hard to prepare for as well. But Tony Bennett is hard. So is Leonard Hamilton. So is Mike Bray. Uh, Rick Pitino, was, when he was in the league, those teams were hard to prepare for. And what makes it so unique is they each have their own unique style. So it, when you when you were preparing for Rick Pitino, you had to prepare for the press and then their zone. When you prepare for Jim Bayham, you got the zone and it's for 40 minutes and they never change anything. Right. And then for <laughs> Tony Bennett, it's the pack line defense. Yeah, and exactly. Circle motion uh, offense. And, you know, with with Roy Williams, it was the Carolina secondary and and basic offense. And with. With Coach K, it's all those great NBA players. I don't know how he's done it with all those young kids. It's hard coaching freshmen, and he's got a ton of them. But all you guys are flexible. You know, you still wouldn't be coaching now. Like, you remember, there was a time that Mike wouldn't take. uh, He he had no interest in the one and done. Well, you know, he and you have that same flexibility. You can change as, as the game changes. And I think, don't you think that's important for that's a way you stay relevant? I think you have to adapt in any cultural situation. Our society is changing. You know, social media has changed life dramatically. The NIL will change 
a lot as we move forward. The transfer portal has changed it. You know, uh, when Dean Smith was coaching at North Carolina, one of the, the his greatest uh, accomplishments, he would say, was how many kids of his graduated and he never took a transfer. He, I think he considered uh, Bob McAdoo a, a junior college transfer, but nobody else transferred in. In today's game, everybody's got transfers. We have two starters that are transfer students. Three that are transfer students. I forgot Cam Augusty transferred in well, a couple of years Well, wait a minute. Doesn't ago. Charlie Moore count as like four transfers? <laughs> he does. <laughs> Great young man. I yeah, how did you get that, Tom? For people who don't know, I think it's his fourth school in six years. How did you get him? I mean, he looks like a terrific player. Oh, he Charlie Moore is a terrific young man. He, he had a 3.7 GPA in grad school working on his master's degree in the fall. He's just terrific. We recruited him uh, to Miami as a senior in high school, but he chose Cal, University of California. Uh, and I think he, he did it because of the coach. And um, when that coach left to go to Missouri, uh, he, he left and went to Kansas to play for Bill Self. But when he ended up sitting the bench and he felt like he had more to offer, he transferred back home to DePaul. And when DePaul made a coaching change, he became available. So he'd already been at Cal. He'd already been at Kansas. He'd already been at, at DePaul. He had one more year of eligibility because of COVID. He looked around and Bill Courtney, my assistant, who had been an assistant for Dave Lato at DePaul, had the relationship with, with Charlie and his family and, and his people back in Chicago. Charlie took a good look at Miami and decided to come. You know, he never took an official visit because COVID didn't allow it. We only recruited Charlie and, and Jordan Miller, our other transfer, uh, via Zoom. And, and Jordan knew a lot about me because I had been the head coach of George Mason. So the transfer portal has been good to us. And it's going to change college basketball because now even Duke, they have two transfers on their team. Wake Forest has five. Carolina has a couple. I mean, everybody in our league took transfers. I don't think Virginia would be nearly as good if if they didn't take uh, uh, Franklin and Gardner, who are our two transfers who have had a tremendous impact on Tony Bennett's team. Yeah, there's no stigma anymore at all about transfers. Tell me, do you still use, you used to use visualization? Is that something that you still do with your kids or you've always done? Well, I'm, I'm a great believer in, in uh, visualizing everything you do. And I use the expression that all things are created twice, first mentally, then physically, because you have to envision what you want to do before you do it. And I encourage the players to dream, to visualize, to plan how they're going to play, to visualize the shots they want to shoot, to visualize how they're going to defend the opponent that they're matched up with. And if they do a good job of visualizing, it'll help them play better. And uh, I've always done it myself as a player and as a coach. I try to visualize the game before it's ever played. And that helps me develop our game plan. And uh, visual visualization, you might call it even meditation. Meditation is different because you're supposed to have a blank mind. But what you're really doing is trying to see things before they happen, anticipate what might happen and how you would react to it. 
I am not a fan of analytics. I think it's ruined baseball, but I know you are. Where do analytics apply in basketball, college basketball? Okay, you are a fan of analytics, maybe not in sports, but I will, I will, I will give you analytics. Analytics is only a number. But numbers, if it depends on the weight that you put on the numbers. Right, and exactly. in baseball, it's three swings now, swing away or strike out. What happened to a great defensive play? What happened to a triple in the gap? I mean, really? Okay, so numbers tell a story, but it tells a different story to every reader who reads those numbers. And, uh, you know, I think analytics has, uh, ha has its value, but if, if you overrate it like anything else, then it can be bad. Uh, you know, let, let's, let's use this as an example. I'm a great believer in numbers. So someone said to me the other day, how can you possibly win when your field goal percentage defense is 50%? The opponent is making half of its shot. How do you win the game? I said, well, because you haven't incorporated all the numbers into the picture. So our opponent, let's say, has 60 possessions and they make 20 out of 40 shots, but they have 20 turnovers. They shoot 50%. But if you really do all the numbers, it's 20 out of 60. That's only 33%. we got a great chance of winning. Oh, that's where you use it. Okay, that's not bad. A, a really good example. Kent Needland was a walk-on at the University of Virginia in the 80s with Ralph Sampson. Well, I covered them, but no, I don't remember. Him. Yeah, so Kent Needland was a walk-on who made the varsity team. And I was keeping all of our analytics even back then in the early 80s. And I told Terry Holland, I said, look it. I'm keeping the plus minus. And when Kent Neatland's on the floor, we're a plus all the time because he doesn't shoot. He never takes a shot. He never turns it over, plays great defense and rebounds. And Ralph Sampson gets more shots. The best players are getting more shots. And yet this kid's a walk-on. We should play him more because we're winning when he's in the game. And Kent Neatland, was one of our best players when we went to the Final Four in 1984. And he still never scored. Yeah, he but if he doesn't all. score, and uh, can it be some other factor that maybe you didn't see, other than a kid who doesn't score on the court? No, that's the whole point. The team scored. He just didn't do it. So at the end of the game, he might be uh, well, no what shots. what did he do? What did he, he do He played then? great defense. Oh. He played... He got great rebounds. He set great screens and got the scores open. And so you're only going to take, let's say, 60 shots in a game. How many do you want your best player taken? You and want how many Othell do you want Wilson your subs to take? You want Othell Wilson taking all those shots. So that's what ended up happening. That's how we got to the Final Four in 84. Kenton didn't take any shots away from Othell Wilson, uh, Ricky Stokes, Rick Carlisle, Jimmy Miller, and Tim Mullen. Tommy Sheehy and Olden Polonies. Kenton played 25 minutes a game. And when he was out there, we won when he was out there. So, you know, I never heard that you got to the final four because of Kenton Edelin. <laughs> <laughs> but he'll be thrilled. I'm going to send him this after, after it runs. He'll be You know what Kenton does now? He's a lawyer in Washington, D.C. He's an agent and he represents a lot of players in the WNBA. 
He represents women in pro basketball. All right, love. You are so much fun. Um, it's really, uh, this is such an exciting time of the year. So, um, and I'll see you at the ACC tournament. Okay. And are you going to Google Kent Needlin as soon as we get off? Yes, of course I am. I'm a reporter. I'm an award-winning reporter. I'm going to find out if that guy had, maybe you just had four people on the floor. Well, congratulations on your Hall of Fame success and uh, your career, Leslie. Always great talking to you. And that was my conversation with Jim Laranega. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound design by Robert Moore, and special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.